Chapter Thirty Four of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Thirty Four. Tragedy in Sonoma, Christian Brunner in a prison cell, St. Catherine's Convent at Benicia, Romance of Spanish California, The Beautiful Angel in Black, The Prayer of Doña Concepcion Arguello, Monastic Rites. Time passed. Not a word had come to me from Sonoma in months, when Benjamin handed me the Union and with horror I read the headlines to which he pointed. Tragedy in Sonoma. Christian Brunner, an old resident, slays his own nephew. From the lurid details published, I learned that the Brunners had asked this nephew to come to them, and had sent him money to defray his expenses from Switzerland to California. Upon his arrival in Sonoma he had settled himself in the proffered home, and at once begun a life of extravagance at the expense of his relatives. He was repeatedly warned against trifling with their affection and wasting their hard-earned riches. Then patience ceased, and he was forbidden the house of his uncle. Meanwhile his aunt became seriously ill, and the young man visited her secretly, and prevailed upon her to give him, in the event of her death, certain cattle and other property which stood in her name. She, however, recovered health, and he, in the presence of his uncle, insisted that she had given him the property outright, and he wanted possession. This made trouble between the old couple, and the wife took refuge with friends in San Francisco. The night after her departure, the husband entered his own room and found the nephew in his bed. Thoroughly enraged, he ordered him up and out of his sight, and was insolently told by the young man that he was the owner of that property, and in rightful possession of the same. At this his uncle snatched his pistol from the table at the bedside, and fired the fatal shot. This almost incredible news was so harrowing that I could scarcely think of anything, except Grandpa chained in a prison cell grandma in hiding away from home, and excited groups of people gathering about the thoroughfares of Sonoma, discussing the tragedy. I was not sorry that at this time an epidemic of measles broke out in Sacramento, and Georgia became one of its early victims. This brought both girls back to the ranch, and during Georgia's convalescence we had many serious talks about the Brunner's troubles. We wrote to Grandma, but received no answer, and could only wait to learn what would be done with Grandpa. He was arraigned and held, but the date set for trial was not fixed before Benjamin took Francis and Georgia to Benicia to enter the September term of St. Catherine's Convent School. Upon Ben's return, I observed that he and Elitha were keeping from me some mysterious but pleasurable secret. It came out a few days later when Elitha began making a black and a white uniform which would fit no one except me. When ready to try them on, 
She informed me that we would have to sew early and late, that I might be ready to enter the convent by the first of October, and thereby reap the benefit of the institution's established custom, that when more than two of a family become pupils the same term, the third one shall be received free of charge, except incidentals, with the understanding that the family thus favored shall exert its influence toward bringing an additional pupil into the school. Friends who had religious prejudices advised Ben against putting us under Catholic influence, but he replied good-naturedly, The school is excellent, the girls are Protestants, and I am not afraid. Besides, I have told them all the horrible and uncanny stories that I have heard about convents, and they will not care to meddle with anything outside of the prescribed course of study. He was twenty years older than I, and had such conservative and dignified ways that I often stood in awe of him. So when he let the convent gate close behind us with a loud click and said, Now you're a goner, I scanned his face apprehensively, but seeing nothing very alarming, silently followed him through the massive door which was in charge of a white-robed nun of the Dominican order. Presently, Mother Mary Superior and my two sisters came to us in the reception room, and my brother deposited the fund for my school incidentals, and, after a brief conversation, departed. The preparations in connection with my coming had been so rapidly carried out that I had had little time in which to question or anticipate what my reception at the convent might be. Now, however, Mother Mary, with open watch in hand, stood before me, saying, your sister Georgia cried twice as long as expected when she came. Still, I will allow you the regular five minutes. I don't wish to cry, was my timid response. But, she insisted, you must shed a few entrance tears, too. Before she finished her sentence, and without thinking that it would be overreaching a stranger's privilege, I impulsively threw my arms around her neck, laid my cheek against hers, and whispered, Please don't make me cry. She drew me closer to her, and her lips touched my forehead, and she said, No, child, you need not. Then she bade me go with my sisters and become acquainted with my new surroundings. I was at once made to feel that I was welcome to every advantage and privilege accorded to Francis and Georgia. The following Monday, soon after breakfast, I slipped unobserved from the recreation room and made my way to the children's dormitory, where Sister Mary Joseph was busily engaged. I told her that I had come to help make beds, and that I hoped she would also let me wash or wipe the silverware used at the noon and evening meals. She would not accept my services until she became thoroughly satisfied that I had not offered them because I felt that I was expected to do so but because I earnestly desired to do whatever I could in return for the educational and cultural advantages so freely tendered me by the convent. By the end of the week I knew the way to parts of the buildings not usually open to pupils. Up in the clothes room I found Sister Mary Frances, and on assuring her that I only wanted occupation for part of my leisure time, she let me help her to sort and distribute the clothing of the small girls on Saturdays. Sister Rose let me come to her in the kitchen an hour on Sundays, and other light tasks were assigned me at my request. Then did I eat the bread of independence, 
take a wholesome interest in my studies, and enjoy the friends I gained. My seat in the refectory was between my sister Georgia and Miss Cayetana Peñe, a wealthy Spanish girl. Near neighbors were the two Estudillo sisters, who were prouder of their Castilian lineage than of the princely estate which they had inherited through it. To them I was in a measure indebted for pleasing conversation at table. My abundant glossy black hair and brunette type had first attracted their attention, and suggested the probability of Spanish blood in my veins. After they had learned otherwise, those points of resemblance still awoke in them an unobtrusive interest in my welfare. I became aware of its depth one evening in the recreation room, while Georgia was home for a month on sick leave. I was near Miss Dolores Estudillo, and overheard her say quietly to her sister in Spanish, Magdalena, see how carefree the young girl at my side seems to-night. The faraway look so often in her eyes leads me to think that our dear Lord has given her many crosses to bear. Her hands show marks of hard work, and her clothing is inexpensive, yet she appears of good birth, and when I can throw pleasure in her way, I mean to do it. Whereupon Miss Magdalena turned to me and asked, "'Do you live in Sacramento, Miss Donner?' "'No, I live on a ranch twenty miles from the city. "'Do your parents like it there?' "'I have no parents. "'They died when I was four years old.' She did not ask another question, nor did she know that I had caught the note of sympathy in her apology as she turned away. From that time on, she and her coterie of young friends showed me many delicate attentions. While still a new pupil, I not infrequently met Sister Dominica resting at the foot of the steps after her walk in the sunshine, and with a gracious thank you she would permit me to assist her up the flight of stairs leading to her apartment. Bowed by age and wasted by disease, she was patiently awaiting the final summons. I became deeply interested in her before I learned that this wan bit of humanity was the once winsome daughter of Comandante Arguello and the heroine of a pathetic romance of Spanish California's day. The hero was Rezanov, an officer of high repute, sent by Russia in 1806 to inspect its establishment at the port of Sitka, Alaska. Finding the colony there in almost destitute condition, he had embarked on the first voyage of a Russian vessel to the port of San Francisco, California. There being no commercial treaty between the two ports, Rezanov made personal appeal for help to Governor Ariago and later to Commandante Arguello. After many difficulties and delays, he succeeded in obtaining the sorely needed supplies. Meanwhile, the young officer frequently met in her father's house the vivacious Doña Concepción Arguello, and Cupid soon joined their hearts with an immortal chain. After their betrothal, Rezanov hastened back to the destitute colony with supplies. Then he sped on toward St. Petersburg, buoyant with a lover's hope of obtaining his sovereign's sanction to his marriage, and perhaps an appointment to Spain, which would enable him to give his bride a distinguished position in the country of her proud ancestors. Alas, death overtook the lover en route, across the snows of Siberia. When Doña Concepción learned of her bereavement, her lamentations were tearless, 
her sorrow inconsolable. She turned from social duties and honors, and clad in mourning weeds, devoted her time and means to the poor and the afflicted, among whom she became known and idolized as the beautiful angel in black. After the death of her parents, she endowed St. Catherine's convent with her inheritance, took the vows of the Dominican nun, and the world saw her no more. Early in her sorrow, she had prayed that death might come to her in the season when the snow lay deep on Siberia's plain. And her prayer was realized, for it was on a bleak winter morning that we pupils gathered in silence around the breakfast-table, knowing that Sister Dominica lay upon her bier in the chapel. The meal was nearly finished when Sister Amelda entered and spoke to a couple of the young Spanish ladies, who bowed and immediately withdrew. As she came down the line selecting other Spanish friends of the dead, she stopped beside me long enough to say, You also may go to her. You comforted her in life, and it is fitting that you should be among those who keep the last watch, and that your prayers mingle with theirs. After her burial, which was consecrated by monastic rites, I returned to the schoolroom with reverential memories of Sister Dominica, the once beautiful angel in black. The school year closed in July 1858, and I left the convent with regret. The gentle self-sacrificing conduct of the nuns had destroyed the effect of the prejudicial stories I had heard against conventual life. The tender ennobling influences which had surrounded me had been more impressive than any I had experienced during orphanhood, and I dreaded what the noisy world might again have in store for me. My sister Frances and William R. Wilder, who had been betrothed for more than a year, and had kept their secret until we three returned from the convent, were married November twenty-fourth, 1858, and soon thereafter moved to a pleasant home of their own, on a farm adjoining Rancho de las Casadores. The following January, Georgia and I entered public school in Sacramento, where we spent a year and a half in earnest and arduous study. End of chapter 34